John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Have accessed entry JG1601, certificate number 49605. The Winchester Geese. We should do one another favors, Frankie, you and me. Why don't we start? Why are you doing me one? We got back from Belgium a week ago or Who, so. You as and you me? Know. Yeah, you and me just got back from Belgium. I, I, maybe I'm losing my mind, but I don't remember a thing about our trip. No, my family and I got back from Belgium. Oh, I see. As you that know, means. because we bought you chocolates. Yeah, at the airport. No, at the tra- we were running for the Eurostar. We took the train. So on the way home, it was fun. We saw Bruges. We saw World War One stuff. We saw caves and castles. And we went to Luxembourg for a, about, a I don't know, an evening. It's like a train set, isn't it? Luxembourg's amazing. Yeah, it like is. the way the city is on that ravine. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. really cool. I, I I think people don't people who don't live in Luxembourg or surrounding the the surrounding area don't realize what a great little duchy it is. I was sitting in a we were having dinner at this restaurant in Luxembourg, and this guy comes over and says, "Hey, you know, uh, it's hard with Alex Trebek gone, but you're doing a great job." And I was thinking. Is this the only Jeopardy viewer in Luxembourg? What? He was a Luxembourgian. That can't be right. Luxembourgian. Uh, he was not. He was an American tourist. There you go. But even so, what are the odds that he's just that there are American tourists in Luxembourg? Well, there's a Jeopardy viewer sitting across from me at a restaurant in Luxembourg, of all places. Oh, I see. I think he, if if he were telling the story, he would be able to say, "What are the odds?" Right. But you? Well, sure. I'm I'm a better story than he is. Yeah, you're a celebrity uh, who is in the world. Let's listen to his podcast and see what he thinks about that. Uh, no, that's the that's, that's the problem. I don't want to listen to his podcast. <laughs> On the way home from Belgium, we I told you we took the Eurostar because we were going to go to we're going to stop in London for a few days. We're big London heads, Belgique. But you had to go through France. You don't, in fact. I mean, maybe subterraneanly? Yeah, oh, you do, actually. The train does cut into... France. But you might be underground at that point. Are you? No. Maybe. There's no separate tunnel to England from Belgium. Well, you don't have to go through Paris, certainly. But there's more to France than Paris. Sure. But were we, like, going through the Normandy countryside? Maybe. Where does that... uh, I don't know where that train line enters the do you think it's possible that you were in france and thought you were still in belgium i think that it leaves you're going so fast that who really cares right (laughs) and that's right well and also what's the real difference between france and belgium at least southern belgium no you're right we must have been going through the the tunnel goes the tunnel leaves south of calais right so you i don't think you were underground all the way, but the but it leaves from Belgium, and in fact, it it that it goes further than that. Like you can get on the Eurostar in Amsterdam, so I mean, you're not in France most of the time. You're in France briefly, in between. I mean, Calais isn't even really. It's not like it's not like Calais is right on the border either. No, Dunkirk is kind of on the border. Yeah. But. Did you go through Dixmude? You don't go through anything. You're going like at a 150 miles an hour or something. Right. Uh, it all looks like Belgium and or Northern France is what I'm saying. I see what you're and saying. And before we got on the train, uh, I got you a thing of chocolates because I realized I appreciate you, that. You, you had driven me to the airport. I, I did. I don't mean to be ungrateful. Although from what I understand, you got 
boxes of chocolates for people that didn't drive you to the airport too. You got the same box of chocolates that my mom did and she watched our dogs for like two weeks. Oh, okay. All right. Your hourly rate is so much better. Cause you, <laughs> the thing about you driving me to the airport is you live 13 minutes from the airport. If I'm in the same category as your mom, then I feel that's about right. I think that's appropriate. Who have I talked to the most? My mom, your mom, Merlin Mann, it's, it's got to be. I'm. I got to be up there. I've talked to Merlin Man for zero minutes, so you're you're way ahead of him. You've talked to my mom for not an insignificant number of minutes, but, but also not 500 hours of podcasting. No, she she she's uh, circumspect. Every time I'm in London, I just think I need to spend more time in London. You love Inglang. I know that about you. I'm not like a huge like weirdo masterpiece theater mug owner guy. Are you not? Well, you couldn't think of the name of Downton Abbey the other day. You called it Waltham Abbey. So maybe I'm more of a, of a Tia Boo than you are. I know where Waltham Abbey is, though. I just don't know where fake Downton Abbey is. I just feel like London is a... I mean, it's just... The, it's the only world city that's done right. And obviously, it has a ton of problems. <laughs> wow. The only world city that's done right? Maybe Tokyo. What's up, London, Stan? Maybe Tokyo has done... Maybe Tokyo's better off. In what way is London, which well, he, is a total cluster hole, jumble, rat infested? No, like, you see, you're thinking of New York. <laughs> New York is at least on a grid. In London, they just like they'd throw a ball fifty feet and 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 uh, and survey a road there. That's actually what I what I like about it. Oh. In fact, no, it's mostly the typography. I'm just moving to. I'm just moving typography to typography or typography. Typography. I am moving to London for early 20th century sans serif, oh. crystal clear typeface yeah, on every nice. sign. That is nice. It's really good. Um, but what's your favorite neighborhood? Well, we spend a lot of time in, we, we're usually somewhere on the West, I mean, pretty far West London. Like we like Notting Hill, like we were staying in Notting Hill this time. But I was thinking for this uh, particular entry in the show, I was thinking about Southwark. Where what? I had not been the first few times word. I went to London. It's right across the Thames from the from the city. So if you go across London Bridge. Oh wait. Um, I stayed over there one time. So if you've ever it's I mean kind of warehousey. It was. I mean, it was very industrial for decades. Recently it's kind of become a tourist hub because they built the shard right there. So weirdly, the That's tallest right. skyscraper in well, it used to be the tallest skyscraper in the EU. Now the tallest skyscraper in the UK is just rising above this neighborhood. Didn't and, the shard, I, I, I seem to remember it was like melting cars or something. That was a different building. That was maybe oh. the walkie-talkie. For some reason, they've decided to name all their buildings after prop, like non-proper nouns. Yeah, like the people in this my family name their cars. This one's the gherkin. This one's the uh-huh. walkie-talkie. I but did yes, stay the, over there in, in, a, in, a, in a converted warehouse, but that was a long time ago. It's really like great touristed neighborhood over there now. The Borough hmm. Market is there. This huge, huge food hall. Uh, I've eaten there. I had a deluxe English breakfast in a fancy restaurant there where they took what should be a normal thing, a deluxe English breakfast, and they made it fancy. What does that mean? It had cilantro in it? No, it just, everything was everything was good. It wasn't all the same uniform color of brown gray. It was... Like, tasty. My son now loves uh, English breakfast. Oh, they're the best. He just wants beans on toast all the time. They're the best. Three kinds of bacon, blood sausage, eggs, he'll beans. Eat, he'll eat the black sausage, but he won't eat the tomato, which is confusing to me. He just, That's oh, a weird palate. Well, so I got in trouble, and it was actually at this very breakfast I'm talking about. I was with some English people. This is why you don't go to Southwark anymore. You've been asked to leave. And I, uh, you know, the way I like a deluxe English breakfast is the way I eat all my food, which is you cut it up and mush it all together and make it into a big pile of food. And uh, I did that with this fancy English breakfast. And then I looked around the table and I was greeted with looks of horror. Everybody's jaw, lower jaws on the table. Because I noticed they would all take a discreet, dainty bite of beans and then there was a there was a, 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 a Catholic distance between that and the tomato, which they would then take a little, and then they would move to the a little bit of this. And the fact that I had put it all together into a into a stew 
Oh, it was so repulsive it's to them. It's kind of repulsive to me. Why? Now that you're mentioning it. You get Just little... imagining you stirring, sitting there, not stirring, stirring all your food into a big brown not mass. Exactly so stirring, it looks like refried beans. The thing is, if I have a, uh, uh, if I have a bite of soggy tomato, I want some beans and I want a little ham and some egg then in it. Then you make a tour around your plate, young man, and you pick up a little bit of each. I suppose. You don't need, you don't, you can't do your, your top honey, uh, what is it called? Hobby tunneling. <laughs> <laughs> in a breakfast uh no it's a fun neighborhood yeah it's a nice. nice cathedral there there's uh uh some replica of uh, francis drake's ship i think for some reason mm-hmm. in the river there my, rats there's tons of rats yeah <laughs> my younger kid loves this old operating theater museum that's right next to the shard that has like you know weird old apothecary stuff plus you know amputation saws and knives isn't that a concerning sign oh very much isn't so. that on a list of things to watch out for we uh, we were there one time and uh they, they they hand out to kids uh they hand out to kids a uh, like an activity sheet of things to find in the museum and my younger kid did all the activities and received the greatest gift ever a uh, a ballpoint pen or biro uh, that looked like a hypodermic needle oh and was, one. and was so happy to have it, and so the and then lost it, and so when Mindy and I went back to London a couple of years ago, she she went to this operating theater museum just to get one of the pens, and there's no lift. She you know she runs up three flights of stairs, and then at the top there's this empty museum because it's like kind of the waning days of COVID. So these old ladies volunteering there haven't seen a human there in years. Yeah. And they're so excited. They're like, oh, "Come in! Would you like to see the museum?" And she's like, "What?" what? Oh. <laughs> I just want to buy a pen. Where's the gift shop? And they were very disappointed. Oh. She was just replacing the pen. But, you know, fun neighborhood. And uh, Southwark has long been, uh, you know, it was just outside the city of London, but it was right across from London Bridge. So it's been a, bur- it's called the Borough Market because that was a borough of the city of London for, you know, I'll probably pushing a thousand years. I see. Um, the first London Bridge there was probably... The lo- the Romans building a pontoon bridge. Right, right. Across. Oh, this was the way you got into London from the south. And it was the easiest approach. Like at low tide, I don't know if this is still true, but, you know. Uh, well, they got a, that dam. so they're... It's a lot different now, right. But previously at low tide, this would actually be a causeway. And you could actually ford the So this was the main entrance to London from the south. Oh. Uh, but, of course, that meant it had to be fortified. And that's where various London bridges were built, and in some cases, then later shipped to Arizona. Mm-hmm. Maybe that could be an omnibus. Why at some has point. that not been an omnibus? Maybe it's too obvious. Yeah, low hanging fruit. Yeah. The myth, by the way, about that guy thinking he was buying Tower Bridge is not true. No, you would have to know. You would have to know, right? They would have to disclose it in the. I mean, on Zillow, you'd have to see. This is not Tower Bridge. Look, it doesn't have any of the points. But talk about your all time. He's the gauche American millionaire from an Agatha Christie book. I'll, I'll buy your London Bridge. Hey, what do you want for it? It's not falling down, is it? <laughs> Slaps you on the back weirdly hard. How much for Big Ben? So, in the 1990s, our story begins in Southwark, where transport for London is extending the Jubilee Line, mm-hmm. uh, which had been built in the 70s, as re- its name reveals. Right, it was built in 77 or- for the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth. Silver Jubilee of Her Majesty's reign. They also made Triumph motorcycles a, for her jubilee. A jubilee, the 25th anniversary Triumph motorcycle. Were they uh, were they battleship gray? Yes, they were. The color of for some reason the color of the lo- of this line was originally battleship gray. And I think maybe it still is. Yeah, I think it's still dark gray because of that's that's a version of silver. The reads on it. Subway map. Exactly. Yeah, they were silver and they had British flags on them. I bet you Land Rovers, I bet you everything that they make in Inglang, they made a gray version of it or a silver version. Do you think the Queen ever rode one of her Silver Jubilee Triumph motorcycles around around Balmoral? You know, she was pretty sporty up there. Sure. Yeah, it's possible. We were there, I mean, we were there, when we were there this summer, it's her, uh, as you know, it's her Platinum Jubilee. Oh, right. It's her 100th anniversary on the throne. Same same, same color, basically. What are they going to do now? Uh, purple, apparently, is the color. Oh. They've decided royal purple is, is what they're going to use. I like that. So the moat of the Tower of London is full of wildflowers, largely purple. Well, it seemed like many of the royal gardens had purple plantings everywhere. And they had just opened a new subway line. She's been on the throne so long that she has her second Jubilee subway line. There's now the, the Elizabeth line. Runs is you know it's a train line, but it, it's underground rail through London, 
all the way from Paddington in the West out to uh, uh, whatever that station is called uh, in East London, uh, Liverpool Street in East London. Um, so she's is got, this a useful line, or did they just build it to celebrate her and no one will ever use it? I think it's pretty great. Like you can get out to, I mean, you can get from anywhere in London to Heathrow in half like half an hour, forty minutes. On the, the only place you would want to get, yeah, to get out of the country. <laughs> Every time I'm at Heathrow, I remember that scene in Get Shorty where Dennis Farina gets asked anything to declare, and he's all beaten up, and he says, yeah, don't go to England. So my wife gets to hear that joke at every immigration and customs line. On, oh, wait, on you don't continents. actually do it. Well, I say it to her. I don't say it to the guy. Oh, I see. I've yeah. never said it to the guy, because, you know, you don't want... No, they don't, don't want to get pulled aside. They don't want funny interactions, because that's when they get a supervisor, when they have a funny interaction. So were you there for any Jubilee events, or is that in the fall, or when... when... I think they had already done the... When, when was the coronation? The spring? I think they had already done most of that stuff earlier in 2023. Because um, remember it's they... not yet 2023. Remember, sorry, they, earlier in 2022. Oh, well, she was crowned in June of 1953. Yeah, so I guess that's all... Is that stuff all coming? Well, it's not yet... Oh, I see. In but 53. She, but she acceded to the... So here's the deal. She accedes to the throne instantly when her father dies in February 52. I so I think it. that's why most of the Jubilee stuff happened earlier this year. They wanted to get it done before she died, and they weren't sure she was going to make it to June. Well, I was looking a little iffy. Remember they had that hologram of her in the coach? They just had, they, no. That's some version of her waving in the coach, but it was like a... a cardboard cutout? It was just a high... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was somebody wearing one of those paper masks that you can buy in uh, Leicester Square souvenir shops. The Jubilee line was being extended all the way out to Stratford, not Stratford upon Avon, but the Stratford neighborhood of, you know, east of London. Uh, And in order to do that, they needed to install an electrical substation in Southwark on the south bank of the Thames. And as Transport for London is going in to build their substation, the Museum of London says, whoa, 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 hold on. We think this is actually, there's, there's plenty of evidence this was a Victorian cemetery. Oh. So that doesn't mean it's, you can't desecrate it. Apparently what that means is the Museum of London got six weeks to go poke around first. Right. Before they built their site. Pre-desecration. And, and I think the substation basically got built next door. So the most of the cemetery is still there, as we shall see. In six weeks, they poked around and found 148 skeletons. And they estimate that's less than 1% of the well over 10,000 Somewhere between ten or twenty thousand bodies. How big is this space, and what is occupying it, if not a operating cemetery? It is very small, and the bodies were really packed in, like stacked, basically stacked in every axis. Uh, more than half were children. Um, so this was a pauper's cemetery. That's exactly right. Uh, everybody's in a cheap coffin, if they're in a coffin at all. All the bodies at the Museum of London virtually all had showed signs of various kinds of vitamin deficiencies, scurvy, rickets. Also, many had syphilis, many had smallpox, many had TB. There are no records of who any of those people were because, as you say, this was a pauper cemetery. This is where you were buried if you either were not worthy of a churchyard in some, t- in some periods of history or couldn't afford a plot in other periods, or both. If you couldn't afford Kensal Green in Victorian London, you might end up here. And it was the rediscovery of what had historically been known and what is still known today to visitors as Crossbones Graveyard. Many of the, most of the adults found in the Pauper Cemetery were women over 35. And in fact, the tradition of this being a women's cemetery goes back at least to the 16th century. So we're now well before the Victorian times when the, you know, most of these bodies came from. Uh, a London antiquarian named John Stowe referred to this plot of land, or he said that, right, this is believed to be the plot, the plot that he identified as a single women's churchyard on the south bank of the Thames. Oh, so spinster ants. Uh, single women, in fact, is a different kind of euphemism. Here. I see. This was a cemetery largely for prostitutes. This is where sex workers were buried. I see. For hundreds of years. And that dates back even further. Now we're going to jump way back to the 12th century. Whoa. In 1140, yeah, whoosh. The centuries fly by. Uh, In 1149, Henry of Blois 
you say that with a lot of contempt. Well, the Blois weren't great. Of all the of all the ruling houses of England, the Blois did not stick around much. <laughs> There's King Stephen the First, and you don't even call him Stephen the First because there was no Stephen the Second. There was one Blois, King Steve, and that's it. Then it's you know Plantagenets all the way. He bought a parcel of land uh, there opposite the city of London, thinking of putting a residence there. He lived out in uh, Winchester. He was the Bishop of Winchester, mm-hmm. which today we would think of as a London area place. But back then, 60 miles was 60 miles. And for his affairs in the city, he wanted to live closer to the city of London. This would be right opposite London Bridge, prime real estate. Except overrun with rats. <laughs> well, of course it's overrun with <laughs> rats. But back then, you didn't even have to put that on the listing. Oh, right, sure. Because every place was overrun with la- uh, with rats. I had a very exciting moment going to the mail the other day. Oh, what John, happened? I got sent some amazing new products from Native. I got some too. Were yours like, were yours flavors that had cupcake in the name? I have been using their mint cookie cupcake body wash, or maybe it's mint cupcake cookie body wash, two different baked goods in my body wash, cookie and cupcake. Because before I had this, I would have to stand in the shower and just rub cookies and cupcakes all over my body, and it wasn't helping. I had a, I got a lot of ants on me. Well, I had, two, I had two things go on. When I opened it, I was like, is this going to, how is this going to be cookie and cupcake? And when I smelled it, it was both cookie and cupcake. And then, of course, I thought, why would I want that in my soap? But then it turned out I really like it. I also got some fresh peach cupcake. I think it was deodorant. I can't remember which was which. And it really does smell like a fresh peach cupcake, <laughs> if that's a thing. So like the hard part is just like making sure you you rub it on your underarms and right. not and not just eat the whole thing in one sitting. Well, so this body wash, uh, it's a it's a, a, a large bottle, and I've been using it every day, and uh, it tingles in a refreshing minty way. But the cupcake and cookie thing, it goes so naturally with my normal sort of cupcakey scent that um, it's, a, it's a, a pleasure to have with me all day long. It's a collaboration with a tiny cupcake bakery called Baked by Melissa. Okay. These are like based on the delicious creations of that uh, company's founder, Melissa Ben Ishe, mixed with natives. We've plugged these before. Simple but effective formulations. To surprise and delight consumers with every wash and swipe. When I wash and I swipe, mm-hmm. I like to be delighted every single time. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, Native delivers. Other brands, it might be every three times, every six times even. Not Native. You know what a drag it is to swipe and not be delighted. Oh, it's the worst. So You, you just keep swiping, hoping to feel something. Yeah. Feel something. I used to feel something when I swiped. So the Native Baked by Melissa collection has four separate scents available in deodorant, body wash, and shampoo and conditioner. And they still have the same guarantees you come to expect from Native. It's aluminum-free, vegan and cruelty-free. The ingredients are naturally derived. You'll recognize everything on the label, if that matters to you. The limited edition scents are tie-dye vanilla cupcake, mint cookie cupcake, that solves that question, fresh peach cupcake, and ginger lemonade cupcake. Mm, smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. And you'll get 20% off your first order by going to nativedo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout. That's nativedo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout for 20% off your first order. Delight in every swipe. He was the Bishop of Winchester and... Uh, this, as a result, his estate there came to be known as the Liberty of Winchester. Huh. Um, I don't know in what sense it's a liberty. I guess it's, he's at liberty there. Right. Nobody else is. It's, his, a, it's his land. He's a libertarian. Probably. He was like, hey, if, and that's actually what happens. This is outside the city of London. And because the, because the, uh, it's been granted to him by the king. Um, it's his, his own little fiefdom. It's not, yeah, it's uh, it's not under the jurisdiction of the county of Surrey either. It's nobody oh. but his, oh. um, which is kind of what gives it its unusual character. Uh, in addition, by the way, it's uh, it later came to largely be known as the Liberty of the Clink because that was his prison. The bishop's prison would be there. You know, bishops back then were not just ecclesiastical leaders. They also had broad 
social and political power. And so it had the ironic name, the liberty of the clink, even though those who got tossed into the clink didn't have much liberty. That's a real lol. That's a back then that's they a were medieval lol. They were cracking up in the taverns over uh, that one, I bet. In the coffee houses. But you wouldn't get thrown into this clink for everything you might think, because being outside the jurisdiction of London and Surrey, this was the kind of place where the illegal stuff that would have been prosecuted in those jurisdictions wound up. So This was kind of a Las Vegas, uh, a chicken ranch? It was the Las Vegas or the Atlantic City of the city of London, uh, right across the river. There would be, that's where all the violent pub fights were. That's where you would go for bear baiting if the king had decided that bear, no, no longer was bear baiting to be allowed. Um, there was enough space to have bear baiting? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a you know, he, he had the whole neighborhood, basically. I get it. Um, think of all the bears you could bait. And it'll, we should not joke about animal cruelty. Bear baiting is, was wrong then, and it's wrong now, folks. Right. And do, it would happen now in a different London neighborhood. Do not bait a bear. Yeah, where would that be, do you think? Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to London recently enough that I know where the bears are. You got to know. They should tell you when you get off the plane. Well, right? they would tell me. They'd say, welcome, governor. And we then can, they'd point me right to the neighborhood. We can tell by the, the looks of you. <laughs> uh, the, in 1161... Henry II, His Majesty, had given the Bishop of Winchester the power to license prostitution. All right. Brothels and prostitution were uh, to be licensed under government care. And because he's the Bishop of Winchester, also under the official aegis of the Catholic Church. Um, and so this was also where you would go, a gentleman would go for a good time from the 12th century on. This was, you know, it's where all the pubs and the bears were, but most importantly to a lot of the clientele this was where the stews were Mm. brothels were called stews not because they stirred all their breakfast together on their plate like some kind of a philistine like an american (laughs) like some kind of american in london (laughs) like an american werewolf in london which me is is that what they say when you show up at customs (laughs) hey governor it's a full moon tonight um they definitely speak to me in an australian accent when i arrive there were uh there are a very, uh, series of theories as to why brothels were called stews. In spelled how, like the stew you eat on your plate. Oh, all right. I'm saying it with an with a stew. Extra, I should have said tube too instead of tube. When they were building the tube, uh, it could be because the Bishop of Winchester had what were called stew ponds on his property, which is where he kept his carp. Okay. I don't know if they're stews because they're gross. Yeah, there's. it's like that literally is like a stew. Or is it's it because a, you're going to take the carp out and put it in a stew? I don't know. It also could have come from the French estuve, a stove. Because um, be, it's a hot well, room. Well, a lot of these were bathhouses. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you're, I guess You'd they could also be, in there. I guess you're also stewing in the tub, but then also, you know, favors are being provided by the working girls. Uh, there, the stew holder was the would be the the madam or the bordello mm-hmm. owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's a title we should bring back. Stew holder, yeah. What what do you do for work? Oh, I'm a stew holder. Oh, nice. Is there money in that? Um, Seems like a good first name, actually. If we're bringing back old first names, hey, it's Stew Holder Jennings. It does sound like a first name, but I guess as an occupation, it would be your last name. Yeah, right. Like Martin Stewholder. Yeah, my parents were were stewholders back in. I wonder. My ancestors were stewholders back in the fifteenth century. Happened. If you put Martin Stewholder into the internet, let's see. Martin Stewholder. Is this going to be a long winter song? Comes up. Oh, the first thing is regulation of brothels in later medieval England. So apparently no one named Martin Stewholder makes it into the first page of the Google replies. But isn't that surprising that in the 12th century, the the Bishop of Winchester is being told, yeah, um, you know, Let's keep an eye on prostitution, but it can be legal in the in the liberty of Winchester. I mean, you know, I think from year to year, people things go and, in and out of fashion. Like, well, yeah, you, like you acknowledge its inevitability, and then somebody comes in on a reform platform and and rails about it, and everybody goes, "Okay, I guess we're against it now." And then the next person's like, "Well, I'll turn a blind eye." Yeah, apparently for most. 12th century Catholics, it really was that kind of pragmatism, like, hey, you know, it's going to happen somewhere. And that really was, when people wrote defending this kind of legalization, or at least libertarian approach to, to sex work, they, that's what they would say. They would say, well, it's it's a vital safety valve. You know, j- 
just like we do now when we, you know, when judges say misogynistic or say things like, you know, well, boys will be boys or, you know, this idea that, that male sexuality and toxic masculinity and sexual assault are inevitable. Um, you know, guys are going to be doing this, so we better let them blow off steam someplace. Better across the river than here, am I right? There used to be an enormous uh, brothel in the Georgetown neighborhood here that I think might have been owned by the mayor. What? And then it was... Do you mean like in the 1890s or do you mean like in our lifetime? Not in our lifetime, but in the 20th century. And then it was destroyed when a B-17 prototype crashed into it and set it on fire. Well, you never want to put a brothel right by the airfield. That's right. That's what. That's inevitably what happens. The pilots were trying to fly by real close and get a glimpse in the windows. I mean, Catholic writers would explicitly say, hey, you, this is what you got to do or, or, or women will be raped. Right. If these guys can't, you know, can't blow off some steam with a willing partner, what can you do? Or, or it'll spread, ask them to keep it in their pants? Come on. It'll spread to all of the other neighborhoods. That's what Aquinas said. Like yeah. Thomas Aquinas is writing, he actually said, hey, look, the palace has to have a cesspool. Hmm. And that part of the palace is going to be gross and smelly, but guess what? That if if you put if all the sewage goes there, everything else smells nice. If you didn't have a cesspool, then the whole palace is gross. Mm, and I think the like idea is Versailles. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is you have to have a red light district, and because that keeps and it's a little bit prim to say, well, that keeps things nice for the rest of us. Well, that's the who, who that's the, go there. the Dutch model, right? They say, look, we're going to do away with crime and do away with. All these social ills by just having these things and just Hamsterdam. Just keep them in Hamsterdam. The women who worked uh, in these stews were called the Winchester geese um, because it was oh. the liberty of Winchester. It was under the bishop's aegis, even, you know, for centuries after his time. That's how the red light district was known. I, maybe he would have thought twice if he'd known how his name would, would have come down through the ages. Wait, maybe, the red light district was known as. Well, it was the, the all the all the sex workers there were called Winchester geese. So wow. his his bishopdom. But so they were they continue to be called Winchester geese until when? Even now? N- no. If you go to London and say to a cabbie, oi. like, "Oi, take me to some <laughs> Winchester geese." I guess it depends on how old the cabbie is. No. Uh, and in fact, even though the pauper cemetery survived into Victorian times, I don't think the association with sex work lasted through that time. I mean, my, my Jack the Ripperology tells me you would have gone to East London for that, not, not to the warehouses across the Thames. I see. Uh, but uh, that was the slang in the 16th century, for example. Uh, in fact, syph- a slang term for syphilis was goosebumps. You got a case of goosebumps. Oh, see? but that's not what that's from. No, I think the idea of goose flesh because it looks like a, a, a plucked, yeah, a plucked bit of poultry. Yeah. That, that's older than that. Um, but it was, you know, in I don't know if this is true libertarian fashion or not, but it was legalized but heavily regulated. There were thirty nine rules that were come down that 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 uh, came down from the twelfth century to regulate what was allowed in these brothels. So there was a rule thirty four. <laughs> you want to know what rule thirty four was? Yes, please. No man in the liberty to cause an assault by breaching these rules. Three shillings and fourpence if you attack a, a prostitute. Oh, well, that's different than the contemporary usage. Uh, maybe rule 35 should be rule 34. That's no whore to wear an apron. Uh-huh. What? What if that's your thing? What uh, if you're like... Yeah, what if rule 34 says... Yeah, put on an apron. That's what, I, you know, I've got a Marge Simpson thing. No, because respect, this, see, respectable women wear aprons. A lot of these rules are kind of... I see. Have the subtext of... Um, we're going to allow this, but we're going to shame it a fair bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what if I, does it say anything about wearing a big gaudy cross on a gold chain and fingerless lace gloves? You're in luck. That is absolutely okay. Oh, nice. Um, what are some of the others? No whore to entice any man into the brothel by pulling on his coat or any other item of clothing. That seems fair. 20, sh- just, 20 shillings. Just trying to walk down the street here. I mean, some of these, some of these fines are pretty heavy. Like, uh, there's a hundred shilling fine... All, rule two, all brothel keepers to send their whores away from the date of these rules proclamation until next Whitsuntide. Oh, why? Oh, just to Th- period guess, of reflection? That is, well, I think that's <laughs> when it's originally, this is when the law comes into effect. I see. Once these rules were first issued, you had to wait until Whitsuntide to get it on. But a hundred shillings would have been, 
at least five pounds back then. And in the 11th century, you could run a castle for a year on 15 or 20 pounds. Yeah, that's going to get you. Like the richest, the richest man in England was getting 200 pounds a year at the time. So some of these were taken very seriously. But you can tell by the smaller... The smaller amounts, the, the the ones kind of involving the actual women were not, uh, you know, were not well. What was the one? Well, Rule thirty four was about attacking a, attacking a, a sex worker, and that was three shillings, three shillings fourpence. Oh, so not that big. And that you'd had to know that would be nobody in nobody's interest to even prosecute. Right. Like everybody knew. Um, uh, have you ever been accosted by a uh, sex worker where uh, she grabbed you? I don't think I've even been vocally propositioned. Wow. Because in, well, in, in most jurisdictions now, the idea is they dress in a non-apron manner such that I approach them. You know, nobody has to come up to you and say, hey, looking for a good time? And you think, oh, wow, you're a sex worker? I mean, yeah. I mean here in oh, Seattle, you drive down Aurora and you can tell uh, who might be in the business. Right. But other places. But I've never had the "Hey, looking for a good time." You're suggesting that it, that when you sit down in a bar in a hotel lobby and stir your diet ah, Pepsi with a swizzle stick, that you wouldn't know that your that your very interested conversational partner was soliciting. I mean, having not picked up women in bar, I'm having been married for 20 years. I'm not in the kind of situations where there'd be a question. I I, I now understand. What you hardly ever about. sit in a bar uh, having missed the big sale. Having having right. gotten chastised by a boss and having all the bad leads, yeah, and you're just sitting and stirring your drink, going like, ah, oh, if I could just get the clink. And then leads. you're thinking, why is this sparkling young woman so interested in me? Yeah, no, uh, you never think that. You assume she's going to be interested <laughs> in you. <laughs> it, depends so... many, it depends on how many drinks you've had. I'm just stirring my 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 diet, Doctor P. Right, and I'm impervious to her wiles. I know what's up. I yeah. think yeah. my wits are about me. No brothel keeper to employ general staff beyond his wife, one washerwoman, and, wo- and one ostler. What? What? A lot of these are just general industry regulations. Well, what happens if you expand? What happens if you uh, if you build out? Yeah, it's really gonna it's really gonna overwork your washerwoman. Not to mention your to say nothing of your ostler. What about th- what about three washerwomen and two ostlers? What would happen? What's the fine? Three shillings? I want more on rule nine. All horse to wear some agreed garment indicating their profession. So basically there's the equivalent but of But not a, an apron. But that's what I'm talking about. Like wear something. So for you, fingerless gloves and a big and a big gold cross, I guess. Uh, if you put an ostler into the internet, you get a Swedish rock musician and singer uh, named Pele Osler. Uh, it says nothing about a uh, profession. Oh, this is good. No whore to be found in the liberty between sunset and dawn on any day when the king's parliament or council is sitting at Westminster. Boo! So only when parliament is not in session. That's because when parliament's in session, all their all their clientele is busy. Right, right. You wouldn't want to distract them from their duties. This is what really tells you who's being valued here. Uh, you know, I told you the fine was very... Uh, small for violence to a sex worker but if it's the other way rule 21 no whore to chide with any man or make a fray hmm. the fine will be three days in prison plus a fine of six shillings eight pence oh boy so if if uh you know a woman who attacks at john is in much worse trouble than the other way around which we assume would be more common and more dangerous well it seems like the the bar is pretty low too to not chide I assume chide has a specific legal meaning in the 12th century that does not come down to us. Just well, Do you think she's really saying, uh, you've got a hole in your sock, buddy, not just and you're like, strumpet? That's three days in prison for you, for I'm thee. Gonna, I'm going to say 50% of the people there wanted to be chided. That's why <laughs> they're willing to pay extra. Uh, I think you're that's a, you're revealing a little too much about yourself. There. No, no, no. I, this is it's Westminster. Like you have to assume they're all they're all, all these all these politicians. Yeah, these politicians who like want want somebody to to put their foot on their head. They want to be told they've been wig. very very bad yes. bad lords. You're a bad lord. Uh, but the main way in which um, you know the main sign that this was all being regulated. I mean, the reason why you regulate the industry is to tax it, of course. Yes. This is why the king is interested in. Uh, making sure that prostitution is semi-legitimate. It's why the Bishop of Winchester wants his cut. That's why the Dutch do it too. They want the tax revenue. Um, but, it, you know, it did empower the women to some degree. I mean, if something went wrong, they could take somebody to court, which yeah. is not a protection they would have had, you know. They had all these, they had a whole list of rules. They had 39 rules. But when it uh, when their careers were over, uh, they could not be buried in consecrated ground. 
Oh dear. They could not be in the churchyard. And that's where uh, what was called Crossbones, what I think John Stowe called Crossbones Cemetery first appeared. Uh, that's why there was a pauper cemetery in the red light district because everyone there had done something naughty enough that the church was happy to take their gold, but not their coffins. Ken, if we here at Omnibus were going to hire uh, some employees, which we probably should do. Let's hire like 30 people today. If we hired 30 people, how would we begin to manage all those employees? Neither you nor I want to be in the HR business. Just onboarding them, you know, doing all the training and stuff they need, doing continuing feedback so you can continue to monitor their performance. I have no idea what the current compliance issues are. How often do employees get breaks? How? What happens if they don't come to work for weeks at a time? All the regulatory stuff. What are we going to do? Are we going to hire 30 people and an HR department? Well, let me tell you what. HR issues can kill a small business, and HR expenses could drive us right into the ground. $80,000 a year, right? To pay an HR manager? Well, that's the average, but here in Seattle... A lot more than that. So what do we do, John? Solve my problem that you just invented. Well, <laughs> here's what we do. We hire Bambi, which is to say that for $99 a month, we employ Bambi.com to uh, act as virtual HR managers for our company. Virtual. They're available by phone, email, and chat. So they can run all the ongoing HR stuff that our 30 new employees will require for onboardings, terminations, because we're going to fire a lot of them. 30 is just just too many people. Uh Uh, All their HR managers are based in the United States. They're all experienced HR managers that understand uh, business nuances across all 50 states. They can customize their policies to fit your business or our business in this case. They have an autopilot product that automates a lot of what an HR department would do. So, you know, policies, training, feedback, all that stuff just gets taken care of by itself. I, I think we should do it. I think we should hire these 30 people. I think so, too. And I think we will join their thousands of active clients and thousands, and we'll end up giving thousands of five-star reviews. You and I, together. If you are looking to hire... 30 people like John and I are schedule a free conversation with Bambi today. And just, you'll be amazed at how much they can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com slash omnibus right now. That's B A M B E E.com slash omnibus. Bambi.com slash omnibus. Now, Henry VIII eventually ended up outlawing uh, prostitution in 1546. Boy, that's a fine... Of all the people. Fine fettle. It had come and gone over the years. Various tutors had uh, taken it. As you point out, there are reform tickets. Yeah. And there's also waves of syphilis. So at times, you know, Britain was on a war footing against gonorrhea and something had to go or something had to give. But in 1546, it turned out to be reasonably permanent. The The syphilis was out of control. Um, and, uh, just wearing Merkins wasn't going to solve it. <laughs> right. Right. They had tried Merkins for years and it, the Merkins weren't workings. The cemetery, however, continued to take, uh, paupers bodies, those who could not afford, uh, official burial until 1853 when the city closed it because it was completely in quote, completely overcharged with dead. Like there was no place you could put a body without coming across somebody's skull and somebody else's feet. My goodness. Uh, Does it appear in Dickens? It's Dickensian. Right. You'd think with, with, you know, Newgate prison and all the rest, debtors prisons and the like. Um, But no, I don't believe so. I mean, Dickens is prim enough. You know, it is Victorian England. Everyone knows that there's a sex industry, but he's also not talking about where the sex workers wind up. Um, Because that was the reputation this place kept for centuries. Um, It was... It was in all the official annals as the place where women of little respect or repute wound up. Um, but there was enough memory that this was a cemetery that for the following century, century and a half, the locals in Southwark would oppose any development of the land, you know? Oh. Uh, people would try to put up a warehouse or something there and... Uh, there was still an uh, an institutional memory. Yeah, the neighbors would push back and say, "No, there's there's fifteen, there's thousands of people there." It, it was briefly used as a fairground. Uh, there's some evidence. A lot of this history comes to us from 
a local playwright named John Constable, no relation to the uh, landscape painter, um, but was kind of a writer and oddball who in the 90s wrote that he had been visited by a personage he called the Goose. Okay. The spirit of a 16th century prostitute. But he lived in Wales. Or did he live right there where she was wandering the grounds? No, he was from Southwark, oh, okay. or at least was living in Southwark at the time. And, you know, this must have been in him. He must have been one of these guys who feel a kind of a Batman-like level of of uh, stewardship uh-huh. over their streets, their neighborhood, their city. Uh-huh. Uh, because he once he had been visited by the goose, he said the goose then stayed with him and, and talked with him. Well, ever since, he's still alive. And he renamed himself John Crow and called himself the Urban Shaman oh, wow. of Southern. And he, so he walks the night. He believed he had been appointed. He's not a superhero, but he's, yeah, like a, a quasi-spectral guardian of, okay. the, of the ghosts and the spirits and the legacy and the, the historical heritage of Southern and all the souls uh, buried there. Did he sew himself a costume? I can only imagine. Uh, he what, what does he call himself? John Crow. John Crow. Although that seems like something everybody is going to call themselves. John he, Crow London. Uh, apparently not aware that he's becoming a Neil Gaiman character. He uh, he rechristens himself the Urban Shaman of Southwark and in fact writes a series of plays. He's a poet. In the pictures I see of him, he's dressed as an eccentric, but he's in a, you know, he's in a quarter zip. Most of the time. Okay, I see. He's in a jumper, as they would say. Right. In Southwark. Right. He seems like a like a dad. Oh, but here's a picture of him. I think he's acting out his own work here in this picture. He he wrote a series of mystery plays, a kind of a medieval drama form about the history of Southwark over the centuries. The, he's, he's fairly handsome. He was then. Oh, he's good looking now. You know, his hairline's receded, but he, you know. I uh if I were a goose. I would find you would. He is the gander that uh, it would be as good for. <laughs> wow. Well, I hope he's listening, John. That's quite a proposition. Um, his series of uh, of mystery plays, the Southwark Mysteries, uh, became quite popular. And because Shakespeare's Globe sits at the edge of this neighborhood, you know they they uh, that American uh, film uh, impresario built a recreation of the Globe. But is that where it was? I don't think so. No. Um, but he built it Thameside kind of right between uh, uh, whatever, Waterloo, you know, the the cultural stuff closer to Westminster Bridge and Waterloo Bridge. And it's kind of, a, it's closer to the Southwark side of, of, of that town hall or whatever it is. Um, he built a scale model of Shakespeare's Globe. I think you're right. It's in the wrong place. And uh they've presented his mystery plays the idea is just to give all these voiceless people from the past uh monologues you know speak in their voices and tell their stories imagined or if you believe that the ghost the goose is a real uh uh harlot's ghost to to paraphrase she, norman mailer right she's uh, dictating she's telling him her stories and he's passing them along to uh to sold out audiences in the wooden o and well, thank goodness a middle-aged white guy has come in to interpret for us. <laughs> Who else would be a better urban shaman of what is sure to be a diverse neighborhood? The stories of the disenfranchised have uh, found a voice. A series of neighborhood stewards have kind of taken up his movement, kind of in the vein of the, uh, what, what are they called? The guardian angels, the yeah, raccoon wearing? Right. You know, they're not beating up muggers, but they are also putting on, you know, fluorescent yellow vests and... <laughs> and channeling uh, 600-year-old prostitutes? They're caring for the garden. Um, this place, this uh, Crossbones Cemetery, has since kind of become a you know a decades-long tug-of-war between the locals and now all these, uh, this kind of, this group of, of uh, it's kind of a locus of Venn diagram or intersection of pagans. Yes, um, thank goodness. And and also modern day sex workers who see this as kind of a, a shrine to their their history and uh, you know kind of a, a not hallowed at the time but should be consecrated ground. No one knows right who they were exactly or what they were doing. And we have a pretty good guess what they were doing. Yeah, given given the elaborate woodcuts and engravings. So has nothing ever been built on this plot? Has it been a park this whole time? An open ground? 
it can't really be developed either as a park or as a anything else. You know, the Jubilee Line put its electrical substation, you know, over to one side. But it's still a fenced-off area that, um, you know, Transport for London would like to keep people out of, but that all these people would like to visit and have their Halloween masses at. Sure. So there's kind of been an uneasy piece. On the outside of the, uh, you know, we visited it a couple times. Uh, we visited it last week or, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, on the outside of this chain, of uh, this iron grade, uh, grading fence, what do you call that? A uh, uh, cast chain iron link? fence. It's not, oh, oh. it's not chain link. It's, oh, I see what you're saying. It's yeah. a big spiky iron uh, lattice. Um, people hang. It, it's become a, It's become a shrine to marginalized and forgotten people of all kinds, you know, especially women and especially sex workers, but more broadly, all of the above. So it's now covered in, if you look for pictures of the Crossbone Cemetery, you'll see this fence just covered with teddy bears and balloons, streamers, ribbons, painted rocks, self-penned poems, um, weird manifestos probably, um, that get left there as if it were the site of a, of a, of an accident or a public mourning. Yeah. Right. It looks like the, the, the fence after Lady Die. Yeah, outside Buckingham died. Palace or yeah. outside Kensington Palace, right? Um, and it's actually started to receive some kind of semi official status. In 2006, the Southern Council put up a plaque there, you know, paying tribute to the, the those forgotten paupers and especially sex workers buried there. The outcast dead, rest in peace. And uh, now there's been arrangement for a group of volunteers to set up a little garden there and you can you know it's open most weekday afternoons so you can tour the site hmm. and see you know whatever kind of art installations kind of self uh directed outsider art has been put up there um you know beehives and wasp homes and stuff like that too to pollinate the garden um there are some incredible photographs as they were excavating because they ended up putting that substation, they did excavate a certain amount of the graveyard uh, of just bones just stacked like, um, uh, so that it forms a, a, like a mass. Tight quarters. Yeah. Really incredible. Not a good place to hobby tunnel? Is that what you're saying? No, you would be, you'd be up against it, hobby tunneling through here. But this land, even though it's still officially owned by Transport for London, has now kind of become a, it's on the tourist trail. It's a magnet to visit and pay tribute to forgotten and marginalized people of the past, which is really beautiful in a way. And, uh, you know, the analog to a lot of the discussions we're having about sex work today are very present there, you know, where everybody admits that it exists and is willing to either turn a blind eye or pen it up someplace where they don't have to look at it too much if they're, if they think of themselves as respectable and in particular the state can profit by it by regulating and taxing it but when it comes right down to it like will we let them be buried in the churchyard absolutely not you know there there are analogies to all of this to these conversations and these tensions that continue today as we consider you know how do we treat sex work you know what does legalization look like think about the power of the tomb of the unknown soldier because it could be anyone. Yeah, and 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 the symbolism of it, and then you think about the, you know, the millions who are uncommemorated. Um, and when you walk through any old cemetery, and you realize, like, well, the descendants of most of these people are not coming around. They don't even know these are here. The or the, those lines were extinguished years ago. But here's this incredible mausoleum. And, and, and you have to think, as soon as 20 years later, nobody was visiting, and within 50 years, nobody knew who he or she were, was, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I, when I was back in Ohio, we went to a couple of local cemeteries, and in one of them found all of these relatives, relatives that we could tr- trace direct line. Nobody had visited those stones in, in 50 years. And it was kind of profound. You know, I spent quite a bit of time there just kind of brushing the stones clearing the stuff away because I felt this sort of reverence. Um, like, Oh my goodness. Like you're my great grandmother and, and your stone is, uh, no one's maintaining it. And here, here I am. Let me do this. Um, we've, we've visited now, I think all but two of the 
of the magnificent seven big Victorian cemeteries that surround London. And most of them are now overgrown to various degrees in kind of picturesque ways um, because nobody nobody was visiting anymore. And I, my youngest kid is always re, you know setting up tombstones that have fallen over, brushing off moss. Um, yeah, you, you have to imagine, I don't know. I guess I don't, I wouldn't care. I'm fine. I'm fine yeah. under a fallen tombstone or <laughs> atmospheric moss covered something. The thing is that my grandfather was buried in a pauper cemetery in Los Angeles. Huh. Um, and you know, in a, you know, cremated in a mass grave. So alcohol or, or just, just lived a rough life. You mean stewed in alcohol? Well, (laughs) well, I mean, how did he get to the point where he was in a pauper's grave? Yeah. uh, He was an alcoholic and lived in a, in a SRO hotel that's in old downtown Los Angeles. That's now been torn down. And when he died, you know, there was nobody, his sons didn't want to claim him. And so, yeah, he was cremated and put into, it's a known potter's field in LA. Um, and it's never, in all the many times I've been to Los Angeles, it's never occurred to me to go to Boyle Heights or whatever and see, you know, what would you do? Just kind of stand there over this dirt and go, well, I, hey. <laughs> I mean, so interesting to think, you know, but if there was a, if there was a, uh, unknown a single, soldier, a single tomb of the unknown, uh, outcast. Yeah. Right. Like a, like a, like a, uh, I don't know if there was a fence, whether I would tie a teddy bear to it, but definitely if there was a, because I'm not mourning him like you would a lost child, right? He's just a, but a, but a close ancestor, um, but yeah, I wish there were a place, a stone. Nothing against the troops. They should have a Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The but, troops, for sure. But but there could be a, a Tomb of the Unknown Outcast who, who doesn't have a marker anywhere. Every town could have one, right? I mean, I guess the the alternatives to burial we've mentioned could level some of this, right? Uh, if... What, which omnibus entry was that where we talked about a uh, green burial? Yeah, green burial where, you know, turning into a fungus or, or, yeah, right. Or turning into coal or whatever the options were, getting in a, somehow being in a silo or it'd be nice turning that into a tree. Everybody gets a tree. tree, but the problem is there's not room for everybody to get a tree because half the people would be like, I want a Japanese maple. I think there's room for trees. There are room for trees, but there are... Earth, pre- has, Earth has three trillion trees. But those are pre-existing trees. I mean, you could go around and hammer a little sign that goes, this tree is for, is for David Roderick. But don't you think they're cutting down uh, millions of trees a year, maybe at the same speed that people are dying? Are they cutting down trees at the same speed people are dying? I mean, I'm not saying that every tree falls down and kills one lumberjack. I'm not saying they're connected. I'm just saying maybe the rates are more or less the same order of magnitude. When a tree falls in the forest, does someone in Los Angeles die? Yes. No, this is a this is something. This is why the futurelings exist. Somewhere after this episode airs, someone on Facebook will start a thread. Does a tree die? To uh, equivalent to every person that dies, I don't, I don't know. If so, if the math works out, you're saying there are three trillion trees, but there are only eight billion people. Sure. So there, there must be some equivalent. But trees live a lot longer. It's like five hundred times more trees than people, and it's true that trees live a lot lo- longer. But you know, we also Cut th- that down. depends on whether you know places where they don't because we're. We're recycling them every 50 years. When does a sapling graduate to become a tree? When does a child become a person? These are all big questions, Ken. Imagine just going through a forest and knowing that every tree was one person. And in fact, that there are still remains there in the roots. Beautiful. Makes the forest come alive. Wow. Then you won't cut it down. And that concludes the Winchester Geese. Entry JG1601. Certificate number 49605. In the omnibus. Futurelings on the unlikely event social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email was theomnibusproject at gmail.com. 
If you have a message for Mindy Jennings, you can write her there. The Omnibus Project at gmail.com. CC Mindy Jennings. I don't know if Mindy reads that much of it. She reads the ones that are like housekeeping stuff. She doesn't reply to people. She's like, Where, where's my Hassenpfeffer? Yeah, she's always saying <laughs> Um If you want to hang out with other futurelings and see the results of our tree to human uh, death comparison, go to Facebook or any other social media site and look for futurelings. It's spelled with an E, F-U-T-U-R-E-L-I-N-G-S. Remember, Futureling starts with F-U. Uh, if you want to send us some mail, you can send it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you want to send us weirdly sized mail that you're afraid they won't put in a P.O. Box, send it to 18336 Aurora Avenue North, Suite 105, Apartment 55744. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I, I see you over there with a pile of mail. What do you got? Uh, I have someone very angry at me because I have spoken disparagingly of the city of Stockton, California. Uh, you don't want to get those people mad at you. Although, he thanks me for not saying anything derogatory when Stockton came up in the Sovereign Citizens entry. But he says, CJ says that every time... I mentioned Stockton. He's going to send me something positive about Stockton to let me know what its positive aspects are. Oh, and uh, the one thing is that pavement is from there. Is there another thing? <laughs> no, he just sent me an empty envelope. He couldn't think of anything. Oh. No, that's not true. He oh, sent wait, me... You know, Chris Isaac is from there. <gasps> Grant Lee Phillips is from there. Wait, are you Googling no, indie music? I'm just remembering all this. Wait, uh, Grant Lee Phillips and Chris Isaac are both from Stockton? Yeah. Uh, he actually, in fact, sent me the brochure for the 71st season of Stockton Civic Theater. Oh, they're doing Oliver, John. <laughs> How can you say anything bad about a city that's doing Oliver at its, uh, at its Civic Theater? Well, it's a gem. Well, I take it all back. Oh, uh, no, it's more than that. It's I think, no Bakersfield. I think Stockton Civic Theater was the plaintiff, I believe, in a historic California decision that allowed community theaters to identify as nonprofits. Oh. So think how much bad community theater has benefited from uh, the Stockton Civic Theater I think we in ought 1962. Tax the churches and not tax the community theaters and see if it makes the world a better place. I look forward to Ken's upcoming recanting of any and all negative comments about Stockton. Well, maybe we ought to do a, a show on Stockton, California. There's so much to talk about. There's a 10,000 Maniacs song about Stockton. I'm trying to think of something nice to say about it. Um, well, whew. it's not Bakersfield is the nicest thing you can say about it. <laughs> That's what they put on the, on the signs as you drive into the city. I mean, uh, you know, there's Chico. You could compare Stockton to Chico. Okay, if I have this right, is this... Wait, nobody said... Nobody I wanted... I don't know. Oh, I, I guess I said compare Stockton to Chico, uh, and she thinks that that... Okay, if I got this right, this is from Lisa. I answered some questions for her third grader's report. My teacher laughed at the comment about anything but World War II. Hmm. I don't think... I don't think I remember what that was. I was the only kid in my class who had an interview. Well, good job, uh, John. Not you, but John here. But Lisa, apparently John's mother, wanted to include a token of her appreciation... And it looks like, I think this is from her, a little a little padded sign of the kind you might hold up at an auction to show that you were vo voting. Oh, look at that. But one side says, <sighs> compatible with Marxism, and the other side says, non not compatible with Marxism. That is a custom-made and beautiful sign. It's lovely. I wish sometimes that this was a, a video podcast, because that would be a great prop. Imagine holding this up for an instant ruling. Like a uh, like a compatibility with Marxism umpire. Uh, not compatible with Marxism. Uh, compatible with Marxism. I hope I got that right, and this was from Lisa. If so, that's that's lovely. Thank you so much. That is wonderful. So if if a third grader writes to you with one, wanting to do a, his, wanting you to do his book report, <laughs> you should always say yes. <laughs> yes, because you might get one of these. I say yes. And who is this from? I think Kathleen. I lost the envelope. Yes, Kathleen uh, enjoyed the roller derby episode. 
wants us to not forget that Kansas came out City. Not that long ago. No, we're 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 a little close to the bone right now. We're <laughs> only uh, like three weeks ahead. Don't forget Kansas City Bomber starring Raquel Welch. I have never seen that. Me either. But Kathleen must be a local roller derby supporter or even a participant. Here in Seattle? Yeah, because she sent us Rat City Roller Girls um, collector's packs. I think these are trading cards. Well, it may surprise you to learn that I, just yesterday, was in the great city of White Center, otherwise known as Rat City, and was at the skate rink because we had a Montessori school skate party. And so I did many, many laps. And let me tell you, that is a rough, rough floor on that skate <laughs> rink. It has seen some roller derby. There's uh, there's still blood on the blood on the carpet. And it's connected to a bar that is a that's like a true white center uh, roughneck bar. And all of the servers are on roller skates. Some of these are really good. Carmen, get some. Uh huh. That's good. L incarnate. Okay. Georgia O Grief. Oh yeah. I like the I like the ones that are all, you know, some kind of feminist icon, but they've messed with the name. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Uh we will try to collect full sets. We have the Grave Danger pack, the Derby Liberation Front pack, the Socket Wenches pack, and the Throttle Rockets. These must be are they different sub teams or squads? I don't know how this works. I don't works. know, but my kid is gonna be thrilled. Betty Ford Galaxy. <laughs> Thank you, Kathleen. And if you want to support the show by, well, we've already told you how you can support the show by sending us roller derby trading cards. But if you want to support the show without getting off of your computer, uh, support us on Patreon. Your generous contribution helps us maintain the show and produce the show. And, uh, and it entitles you to many goods and cheese. So go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and make a donation to the show. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.